0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are uh, in the book of Esther, so if you would open up to Esther 5. uh, We are in chapter 5 today. And I uh, slide back up that has just where the uh, page number is, because I don't know that page number. It is page two-third. Thank you. It is page 234. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on, on the, under the seat in front of you. You can grab that, and where we're going to be reading is from page uh, 234. We're going to be reading quite a bit today, so it would be great if you could pull that out and use it. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's just our gift to you. So just take it, uh, take it with you. Before we jump in, I just want to say, I know it was kind of short notice, but uh, I just feel the meeting tonight is really important if you're able to make it. Now it will be recorded, I think we said. Uh, but we would just love to have you there because this is such an area. When we think about how the gospel um, impacts our lives and impacts um, the church and should spill over from the church to impact culture, um, I, I think the idea of racial reconciliation, the idea of uh, all of us created in the image of God, redeemed by Christ, and now we're one person in Jesus, and how that plays itself out in practical ways is so important. It's so important to honor the Lord. It's so important to love others. And it's so important as our testimony as a church. And uh, I think right now we're at a unique time in our culture where churches that get the gospel application right in this area. Area, uh, have an opportunity, uh, I believe, to be uh, open arms and welcoming to a culture that is, um, is divided in so many ways. Uh, there's so much hatred and so much accusation, and uh, I think the way we start on this is by awareness. So tonight's goals are really pretty low. I mean, they're just to create, what can you do in one conversation, but to create awareness, And uh, so I'll be uh, interviewing my friends uh, Chauncey and uh, Takia Allman And uh, I think it's going to be a great, great conversation And uh, I think you'll be encouraged by it and helped Uh, And I think you'll be challenged by it as well So all those are good Encourage, help, challenge Those are great things Convicted maybe Uh, I think it'll be great So I want to invite you personally out tonight We'll see you right here at 6 o'clock Okay, I'm going to pray And then we're going to jump into the text Lord, we thank you that you Well, Lord, you are over all things and your invisible hand is at work in ways that we don't understand. You are doing things that we don't see. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that. And each of our lives, there are questions we have um, about our lives, about our circumstances, about others, about the place we find ourselves in today in our life. And I, I pray that you would speak to us through this text, and grant us confidence in the reality that you rule and you reign. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, we're going to be ambitious. We're going to cover more scripture than normal, but I'm not going to speak longer than uh, than I normally would. So that means I need to talk a little faster, and that means you're going to need to listen a little faster. Uh, and uh, so what I'm going to do is because it's two chapters, I'm going to break it down into three acts. There's kind of three uh, acts happening here, so we're going to break it down into three. The first act uh, I'm going to call a step of faith, and that is verses one through eight. So rather than uh, let me introduce the characters, and then I'll give a little background as we go. So the characters in, that we're reading today, if you're new here and haven't tracked with us on the book of Esther, uh, one is King Ahasuerus, um, and he is the king of the Persian Empire in the 480s BC. It's the largest empire in the world. He's the most powerful man in the world, uh, massive, massive... Uh, he rules over massive uh, territory. Uh, Secondly is his wife, Esther, who is the queen, who is a Jew and he doesn't know it because when she came into the palace, she hid her Jewish faith because she was told to do so by her cousin Mordecai. So the king, the queen, she's a Jew, he's Persian. uh, And then Mordecai, who is the cousin uh, who has, uh, uh, who has been mourning because all of the Jews are to be slaughtered in about 11 months. The king has okayed this. He doesn't know his wife is a Jew. So this is, makes for an interesting detail. And Mordecai is getting the word out. He is mourning because all the Jews are going to be killed. The fourth person is Haman. Haman hates Mordecai. Haman hates Jews. Haman is the one who made the edict that Jews are going to be killed. So very simply, we got a king who doesn't know he's married to, to a Jewish woman. Uh, the Jewish woman, uh, her cousin, uh, is mourning because... Uh, all of the Jews are going to be killed. And then Haman is the one who wants to kill all the Jews. And so Mordecai, the cousin, has made the appeal to Esther, look, you're the queen, go to the king, make an appeal. You may be the queen for such a time as this. Uh, So let's get you you in there to make an appeal to the king. And she says, that's risky, that's dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyway. So chapter 5, verse 1. They fasted for three days, and then verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Okay, this is the first act where Esther takes a bold step of faith. In chapter four, she said that if you approach the king without being invited, the penalty is death. And actually, extra-biblical... archaeology has has demonstrated this to be true uh, there's ancient persian paintings reliefs where it shows the king with his scepter on the throne and a guy next to him holding an axe so that the executioner was on site we don't we don't have to have a trial we don't have to have due process if you approach without being invited we've got a guy that will take your life right here if that's what the king wants. And so she says, I can't just go up to the king and say, hey, by the way, I'm Jewish. We've been married five years, a small detail. Uh, By the way, I'm Jewish, and uh, can you save my people? I can't just walk in and do that. First of all, he could kill me. Second of all, I'm risking revealing this detail about deceiving him. And on the third third hand, she says in chapter 4, I haven't even seen the king for 30 days. He's not calling me to be with him. He has a harem uh, of concubines he sleeps with, and he's not even invited me in for 30 days. So it's not like I'm close with the king right now. His, the previous queen was very expendable, uh, so I could be expendable as well, but I'm going to go for it. And she said, if I perish, I perish. So she goes in, she stands in front of his quarters, and in verse 2, it says she won favor in his sight, and he held out the scepter. Which she said, chapter 4, if you hold out the scepter, that means you're welcome. And he says, come on in. Uh, And he says, hey, what is it you want? He knows she has a request. What is it you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Now, that's not literally, that's not a literally, he's not literally saying, I'll give you 50%. It's like saying, you know, it's like saying, what I have is yours. Um... Mikasa is sukasa. You know, my house, your house, doesn't really mean that you can come in and do whatever you want in my house, take down my family pictures, put up your own, just the thermostat, yell at my kids like it's your own. You can't do that. So when I say my house is your house, I don't literally mean that. I just mean I'm open arms, I'm generous with you. And that's what he means. It's a, it's a phrase that just means I am inclined to do what you want, Esther. I'm, I'm leaning in towards you. He even calls her queen in verse three, the first time she's called queen. In the book, So he, he calls her queen and she says, okay, look, here's what I want. Here's my request. Let's have a feast and bring Haman. Now, he's the guy that hates the Jews who is uh, going to execute them all, who has passed the edict to kill them all in 11 months. So I want to I bring both of you to this feast. So they get there, they, they eat, they start drinking. And he says a second time, verse 6, uh, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you, even to half my kingdom. So now twice he has committed himself. I'll do whatever you want. What what is it you want? And she said, here's my wish. Come back tomorrow, and I'm going to have another feast. And her her line is beautiful. Verse 8, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, double. If you're going to do what I say, come back tomorrow. If you're going to fulfill my request, come back tomorrow, and, and, and and I'll make it. So what's she doing here? Why, 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 he's in a good mood. He's already said twice, what do you want? Why does she call him to come back tomorrow? Uh, in Ian Dugit's commentary, which we have out there at the resource center, he says, she is reeling him in like a trophy fish. She, I love that. <laughs> he's a Hebrew scholar and he's and reading a long commentary and goes, this is great. He, man, he is just, she is just reeling him in. Here's what she's doing. She's very shrewd. He's already said twice he'll do it, but now she's making him commit. Come back tomorrow if you will do what I ask. So now he's making a third commitment. He would lose faith tremendously if he comes to the second feast having promised three times he will do what she wants. His very presence is there, I'll do whatever you want. He would really lose face to turn her down. So it's very smart. Uh, it deepens his obligation, uh, makes it more difficult to deny her request. So her step of faith pays off. She takes a bold step of faith, and the Lord honors it. Here is uh, act two. First one step of faith. Act two is a step of hate which is Haman. And the third act doesn't rhyme, but the first two do. So step of faith, step of hate. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as Mordecai the Jew Sitting at the king's gate, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Oh, this idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. So we learn a lot about Haman in this passage. Mordecai has refused to bow down to Haman whenever Haman comes out. He's the second in command in the whole uh, Persian Empire. And uh, so that's why he's having the Jews killed, because he's mad at this one guy who won't bow down to him, uh, Mordecai. So uh, he is now, he goes out from this feast, verse 9, and it says he's glad of heart. He's glad of heart because what we learn about Haman throughout this book is uh, he loves honor, he loves recognition, he loves to receive. Uh, adulation and admiration and uh, so when he is with the queen when she invites when the king invites Haman and the queen it's that's it he's the third wheel on this date at the feast that's pretty tight company and so he is excited he walks out glad of heart but as soon as he gets out there's Mordecai who won't rise before him and so he is filled with wrath he is angry because of this Um, and, and it, 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 he goes home and then what does he do? He gathers everyone around verse 11 and he tells them how great he is. I mean, this is kind of awkward, but he just gathers his friends and his family says, here's all my riches. Here's how many sons I have. Presumably his wife's aware of that, but he's bragging about how many kids he has. He's bragging about his promotions. And then he mentions specifically, even the king invited me and the queen together. Just, I'm in this tight company. I'm the second most powerful guy in the whole nation. And yet, he says, all of this means absolutely nothing to me As long as, verse 13, as long as Mordecai, the Jew, I see him sitting in the gate not honoring me, not respecting me, not acknowledging me. So we get a window into his soul, don't we? He hates Mordecai. And he hates the Hebrew people. And no matter what happens in his life, no matter how great it is, no matter that I'm number two in command, I'm sitting with the king and queen, that means nothing to me as long as this one guy doesn't bow down to me. And what we see here is this is how bitterness works. He is a bitter, angry man. His, his idol, the place he worships is recognition, honor, approval, respect, and he craves that above all else. So when he gets it, he walks out of the meeting uh, he's, he's high as a kite. But when he doesn't get it, nothing makes him angrier and he's bitter towards Mordecai. And this bitterness affects how he sees everything else. This is how bitterness can work is that bitterness towards a person takes all of life's other joys and it just removes the sweetness of the joy it takes other victories in life and it, it takes the meaning out of them. It takes the pleasures of life, which should be things that we're grateful for and appreciate, and it doesn't, it removes the sweetness of the blessing because we are bitter. Mordecai, in a worldly sense, has everything going for him. The king gave him a signet ring and said, Just make the law that you want to make. So he has everything going for him, and yet. Yet there's this one thing that's out of whack and it ruins his I can't even enjoy his life is what he is saying. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of heart, that kind of emotion, that kind of experience where you're bitter. Maybe, Maybe someone has failed to recognize you. Maybe someone, that's what happened to him. Maybe someone has denied you, someone has opposed you, someone has forgotten about you, abandoned you, ignored you. And and there's that sense of, I want, I I, I hate them for that, I'm angry at them for that. That kind of bitterness, it will skew the way you see everything else. He's a deceived man, he doesn't see reality. He's not counting his blessings. He's not, he doesn't see any of this because his, his whole life is colored by bitterness. He looks at all of his life through the lens of bitterness and hatred towards one man, and it affects how he sees everything. He doesn't see truly. He overreacts. A guy won't bow down to him, so we're going to kill every man of this religion and woman and child? He overreacts. Bitterness causes us to react way out of proportion to a situation. Often that's what's going on. When you see someone or ourselves, when we overreact as a pattern, often there's something in us that needs to be dealt with. Bitterness is a cancer. And maybe you've experienced that. Someone has sinned against you and you are bitter against them. Do you see, I just, this this isn't a passage on bitterness, but I wanted to take two or three minutes and point this out because this is a great textbook case. I don't know if you were to do a psychological case study, I don't know that you could do better than Haman. As someone who's angry and unforgiving and bitter. Because it just shows that he is, he is unable, none of, none of this matters as long as he won't bow down. And when they say, well, let's, let's kill him, great, let's do it. He's willing to kill this man for the offense of failing to bow down in his presence. Can you see the kind of damage that causes and maybe you've experienced that yourself. And, and the answer to bitterness is, is ultimately to see that it's not someone's offense against us that's primary. It's our offense against God that is primary. The greatest offense that I should know anything about is not what someone's done to me. Though it may be real, though it may be serious, though it may be evil, they will answer to the Lord for that. But my greatest evil that I can be concerned with is what have I done to the holy God of the universe. It's my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It doesn't minimize anybody else's sin. It doesn't minimize anybody's suffering. It doesn't minimize my suffering. It just says that the way out of that suffering is never by making someone else pay. It's always by recognizing Jesus has already paid for my sin. And it is going to him and asking for his help and his grace to forgive me and enable me to extend the same forgiveness that's been forgiven me in Jesus Christ. Well, his wife and his friends, they feed his bitterness. They say, build a gallows. It's 75 feet high. 50 cubits is 75 feet high. Actually, if you have an NIV, it may say to impale him instead of hang him. Uh, Because the Persian method of death, the gallows was not a rope around a neck. It was a stake that they impaled people. Uh, So that's probably what's going on here. Uh, So let's impale him uh, 75 feet in front of everybody. Uh, so, he doesn't just want to kill him. He wants to make a statement. He wants to humiliate him. This is real bitterness. It's serious. So, great. Let's build it. And then there's a plan. Oh, you got to go back to the feast with the king and queen tomorrow? We'll go in the morning and say, can we impale Mordecai? Uh, can we kill him? Go kill him under the king's orders and then go enjoy the feast. Then go in. Th- oh, that is a great plan, he says. So here is Act 3. Act 3 is Chapter 6. It's the pivot point of the whole story. Chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Uh, They're reading the Chronicles and seeing that Mordecai had saved the king's life. That's what that's saying. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor... Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. (laughs) Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then though his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast. That Esther had prepared. In another classic line from Ian Duggett's commentary, which is out there, he calls this section, chapter six, Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> it really is. It's not Alexander, it's Haman and his bad day. Here we see God at work so clearly behind the scenes, so clearly through coincidence, that at the end of the chapter, even the pagans, the pagan wise men and Zeresh, his wife, even the pagans say, whoa, God is doing something. They don't even believe, but they know God is at work. And all of this starts with verse 1, the king is unable to sleep. By coincidence, that night, while The gallows are being constructed. That night, the king can't sleep. It just so happens. And it just so happens to fall back to sleep. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night. What do you do? Um, Read, watch TV. I heard somebody say exercise. I mean, when I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and can't sleep, the last thing I'm going to be doing, you know, is I'm doing my sit-ups so I can fall back. No way. So anyway, I might eat, but I'm not so. (laughs) Eat some ice cream or something fall back to sleep. So at any rate... A lot of people read. I do that sometimes. And so he can't get back to sleep. So if you're a king, you don't read. You have your servants read to you. And so he finds the chronicles of his life as a king where they record all the things that have happened, usually administrative type of things, very boring reading. Be like reading. Well, it'd just be boring reading. So he is, uh, he, is, he has them start reading to it. So it just so happens he can't read. I mean, he can't sleep. It just so happens he has read to him from the chronicles of his his administration it just so happens that the reader reads from something that happened about five years ago we don't know exactly but around there and it just so happens he reads the account of Mordecai uh he reads the account of Mordecai and at the end of chapter two I believe it is we read that Mordecai had heard about a plot to kill the king and he went and told Esther tell the king he's going to get killed and he he saved him from uh death and so Mordecai had done that. And then it said, chapter 3, the next verses, and Haman is promoted. So these two were put together. Mordecai did something that was forgot about. And this guy Haman was promoted. So what happens is he, he reads and the king says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Have we done anything for that guy, Mordecai? He saved my life. Have we done anything? It was always the practice that a Persian king would do something huge for something that saved someone who saved his life. This was a security plan. If you honored, rewarded, paraded through town, whatever it is, someone that preserved your life, it did a couple things. It it promoted people telling you when they had intelligence that you were going to die. There was an assassin. It promoted everybody to give a tip so that they could get a reward. It promoted that. And also when someone tried to attempt to kill the the king, he was or she was killed. And so those two guys that are talking about here, they were impaled themselves. So you treat people who try to harm you really badly. You really honor those who rescue you. And that's part of your security plan in the empire when kings were regularly overturned by coups and that sort of thing. So he says, we got to do something for this guy. And what, what should we do? And wait a minute, I hear somebody out there. Who's in the court? One of my leaders is here. Who is it? Well, Haman, he can't even wait till the next morning to get permission to kill Mordecai. So he's come. Maybe it's late night. Maybe it's early morning at this point. And so Haman has come to say, is it okay if we kill Mordecai for not bowing down to me. And at the same time, the king is thinking about how do we reward Mordecai? And I love it that you laughed at the story because one commentator says, this is arguably, Karen Jobs is her name. She says, this is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. While Haman plots Mordecai's outrageous death, the king plans to honor him for his faithful service. So it is funny. It's just, it's ironic humor these two things are happening at first so the king asked for the input of Haman Haman says where's well, what you should do you should put royal robes on and put him on the king's horse and have someone parade him through town announcing this is what the king does for people that he delights in and honor him and so I was just thinking of all the places in the bible if I could see one guy's facial expression <laughs> not tied to the cross and resurrection if we take that out if I could see anywhere else in the bible one person's facial expression it might have been to see Haman's expression right then when he said that is what I want you to do for Mordecai. So Haman takes his most hated enemy who he is just moments away from saying can we kill him and he puts him on a horse and he makes him look like the king and he has to parade through town. The man he hates the most, the man who says nothing in life is worthwhile as long as that guy's alive. Now he has to parade him through town and announce, this is what the king does to honor those he delights in. It's an incredible turn of events. It's a great story. And this chapter happens to be the pivot point of the whole story. Now I'm going to make some application, but uh, here's what I want to do before we make that. This is the pivot point of the whole story. Everything changes. The momentum of the book of Esther changes in chapter 6. Haman hurries home at this point. Haman goes to his family, and his family says, look, it's not going to go well for you. If, if, if he's a Jew, and God's preserving him, uh, and you're opposing him, you're opposing God, and it's not going to go well. They predict his downfall. Even his own friends and family say he will fall before you. Now, those who have studied the book and its literary features say chapter six is where everything turns. And it's not just chapter six. And this is really important. It's verse one. On the night the king could not sleep, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It's the moment of royal insomnia. That is is the turning point of the book. And those who study it literarily, I could have put a chart up with a lot of details, but it, w- it would have felt much more like an English class than a sermon. But they track what happens in the story, and things are building to this point, and then they build in the opposite direction. Some easier ways to think about it would be this way. There are three feasts before this moment. There are three feasts after this moment. The city of Susa is mentioned 29 times before this moment. It's mentioned 29 times after this moment. There's a lot of literary detail that show this is the peak of the entire story. The, uh, Haman has the upper hand until this moment. Uh, Haman begins from the beginning of the reading of the story of Mordecai. From that moment, everything changes. Uh, the momentum of the story. And what it shows us is that God providentially works through these kind of details. The book turns on coincidence. God is never mentioned in the entire book but the coincidence is so stark. The supposed coincidence is so stark that it's obvious only God could be making this happen. And it shows us that God providentially works through details, through small details, through mundane details to accomplish his purposes. The king can't sleep. And that seems like a very normal thing. What would be so unusual? Probably if you're a king, you got a lot of stress. You probably don't sleep well, but what could be more normal than that? And yet God does something huge out of something so small, a detail that would never be noticed unless it had been recorded and shared with us as it is in this passage. The king who has been trouble sleeping and reads one section makes all the difference for Mordecai. It is the difference in Mordecai being impaled or Mordecai being empowered. How do you like that? It is the difference in Mordecai being killed or Mordecai being honored and paraded through the city. It is the difference in him being uh, defamed and humiliated, dead for the public to see, or riding on the king's horse honored uh, and uh, respected for everyone to see. All the difference happens right There, He goes from sackcloth and ashes because all the Jews are going to be killed. So he's been in sackcloth and and ashes mourning to now he's on the royal horse. And now Haman is running home and he has his head covered and he is in mourning is what the text says. Everything turns with the king being unable to sleep and reading something and deciding to do something about it. And part of the point of the story is that God works through the smallest details. And do you think about that for your own life? That God works through little details, sometimes seemingly mundane, seemingly things that would never make a headline like a, a king that can't sleep. He does that in your life and in the lives of those that are connected to you to act for your good and for his glory, the scripture Says, when we trust in God's providence, we can look to our past with gratitude. We can look to our future with hope, knowing that God has details that He is orchestrating to preserve His people. Now, last week I emphasized. Esther's heroic act of saying for such a time as this, that she's, she's in the palace, she's embedded in the empire, she's going to leverage her opportunity and her connection to risk everything and do something heroic for such a time as this. And I call this all with a charge to what is your for such a time as this? Where has God placed you? Where are you that the Lord wants to use you in a bold and in a powerful way that confident that he's placed you there and given you those relationships? relationships just like he did Esther so I talked about that and I don't want to take anything away from that but I want to make this point from the book of Esther that the book of Esther does not turn on the act the courageous act of Esther the book of Esther turns on a king who can't sleep It is a small detail that turns everything, and it teaches us, I think, two things. It teaches us, first of all, that providence means that God works through small details. And guess what? That's almost your whole life. Most of life is not lived by, I'm going to take this step of faith, it's now or never, my whole life is on the line, I'm going for it, this could cost me my life, my job, my friends. Most of life is not lived daily. Now that would be un- certainly in places where people are persecuted for their faith, that could be true. But for most of us, that is not the situation we live in 24-7. 24-7. And so if we read the book of Esther and just say, wait for your one defining moment in life, most of us are going to close the book and say, well, that was kind of interesting. Uh, If it ever comes to do or die, I read the book. I'll be ready. But if the truth is that God works through the smallest mundane details, then that means this truth of his providence is relevant all the time. It's relevant when you walk out of here to this building. It's relevant when you wake up to go to work tomorrow. It's relevant when you're driving home in traffic. It's relevant when th- uh, your baby can't sleep in the middle of the night. All of life, all the details of life, God is at work. And that changes how we view life. I love how we have this book out there as well, the, the book uh, uh, Inconspicuous Providence by an uh, author named Gregory. He writes this. Listen to this. I love the way he says this. about the, This is ultimately drawn from the king couldn't sleep, and that changes the whole uh, path of the book. Within the constant stream of circumstances, situations, and events that make up our lives, there are little things happening. Little turns of events, little details that God is invisibly orchestrating with his hands so that they form redemptive pivot points in our lives, even if we don't see it happening and can't see it happening. And to acknowledge that simple but profound reality means that the details of our lives, listen, the details of our lives have a greater depth than we can possibly fathom a greater significance than we could ever hope for, and a greater importance than we can even imagine. To appreciate that is to live differently. Every day becomes a walk of faith. Every day, regardless of what it holds, becomes an opportunity for God to work. Every day is filled with potential divine appointments Who knows what moments today will be pivotal in your life? There are several theological ways to get to this truth. Grace changes everything. All of life is to be lived for the glory of God. So there's a lot of different ways in reading the Bible that we could come to the conclusion that all of life matters. One of the most compelling ways to come at that truth is through the truth of providence, that God is always at work in our lives in ways that we do not see, orchestrating things for his glory and for our good and conforming us, that is, shaping us into the character of Jesus Christ. That means everything matters. That means all of life matters. Now, we could look at that a lot. We could talk about stewardship. I'm responsible for all that the Lord has entrusted me. That would be a great doctrinal truth to say that all of life matters. We could talk about the cross being the center of all things. And we could talk about living a gospel-centered life. We could talk about our different callings and how each calling is holy and spiritual. We could look at that a lot of ways in the Bible. But here's the one from the book of Esther. It is that God is in the details. It is, yes, she took a step of faith, and that should stand out to us. But it is the the literary turning point in the book is a king that could not sleep. A small detail that God orchestrated. And that makes all the difference in following Jesus to know that God is going to save us people because somebody couldn't sleep tonight. And God is going to direct someone to read a certain section. And then a king is going to act with that certain section. God is at work in the big events of our lives, but during the smaller events of our daily lives as well. And so we want to grow in faith anticipating. Now, I'm not talking about being weird you know, I, it, where every second you're not supposed to be some kind of hyper. I don't want to lead anybody. Don't want to lead anybody into paranoia. Is what I'm trying to say. That I took a step. What does that mean? It was a left step. What does that mean? It, I'm not talking about being like every. Whoa. Okay. Are you from God? Are you an angel? I, like every second. I don't mean some kind of weirdness. But I do mean that we should be anticipating God's at work today, and that helps me filter difficulties, things I don't like, things that are huge suffering or things that are small annoyances. Lord, how are you going to use that for my good and for your glory? How are you going to use that in my life? Because all details matter, because it all matters. How are you going to do it? How are you going to use this repetitious thing I do Daily, washing the dishes, uh, filling out a spreadsheet, um, playing with my six year old, whatever it is, commuting to work, again, again. How are you gonna use something that's repetitious, I do all the time, to change? I want I an Esther moment. I wanna, if I perish, I perish. That usually doesn't happen. Usually it's driving, it's dishes, it's spreadsheets, it's taking the kid to the park. That, that is usually where God is at work. And we can miss that if we're just looking for my one divine moment. And you may get that. You may have three, three or four defining moments in your life. I don't know. But there are a million small defining moments. God is at work. Just consider the circumstances of your life that made big changes in your life. Think about your conversion. How did that happen? There was a lot of little insignificant things that led up to that perhaps that you didn't even think about. Maybe you grew up hearing the gospel. Wow, the family you were born into. Maybe you didn't even think about that, but that's huge. The Lord used that. Or maybe there was a friend who invited you to church or gave you something to read or you were flipping the channels and you heard somebody talking about Jesus on the TV or you heard a song or you had a relative that told you or somebody came across your path could be very small but look how the Lord used that how about meeting your spouse see there's sometimes the Lord does in very small things they lead to much bigger significant things at the time you can't see it I met my spouse, at a at Ginger, at a youth camp. We went to a church, youth camp, a lot of kids there, we didn't know each other, but we got put on the same team. We were divided up into colored teams, different colors, red team, blue team, whatever, and you're on a team, and you're having competition all week, and then you come here, get mad at everybody, and then come here, Bible study at night, and worship the Lord. It was that kind of camp. <laughs> so, uh, last night, there'd be adult leaders always repenting, confessing their sin for being too competitive, and that, seriously. So, anyway, so so we're there well we get put on the same team oh well we just don't get put on the same team but we're doing all these things all these different sports so there's swimming and there's softball and oh we need a couple people to play tennis together oh well ginger and i play and when we said love 15 we meant more than a score so (laughs) so we're on the same team so we play tennis together and then we get to know, it. how did I know when I went to the camp? It's always a motivation for me to tell kids go on a mission trip or youth retreat, D- don't act like you're married there. It'll be way down the road. We weren't married for a lot of years, but you never know who you're going to meet. And that's got more than a few kids to camp and more than a few parents nervous that I would use that as, a, as an appeal. <laughs> Worked for me. So... But I mean, just don't know. You don't know what is going to happen. How'd you get the job that you have? Wow, I got this great job. How was it this one defining moment where it was the guillotine or this job? No, probably not. You probably had a neighbor who said something to you. You probably happened to look at an email you never looked at before. You probably had a guy that you worked with eight years ago and didn't even remember. And he called you up and said, we're hiring. I don't know. But oftentimes it's the smallest little thing. They shouldn't have even looked at my resume. But you know, the king woke up at night and he couldn't sleep. And he turned to this page and started reading and boom. Our lives are directed by small little things. You know, I'm pastoring this church, serving in this church as a pastor today, in, in this group of churches and in this church in no small, in no small way because in 1985-ish, I met a guy on a plane flying to Korea, South Korea, who told me about his church. Ultimately, I got to know the guy. Ultimately, I visited his church, didn't like it, came back a year later, joined his church, and I've been in that group of churches, Ginger and I have, since 1988. Met a guy on a plane, and I'm still serving with some of the same people that I met back in those days or in this network of churches, Sovereign Grace churches. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? So the Lord takes small things and he uses them in significant ways. That's one truth. The other truth is the Lord takes small things that don't lead to your job, don't lead to your spouse, but he just conforms us to the image of Christ. He's at work in those even when we can't see. Have you had those experiences? Oh, I thought it was a terrible job. It was so boring. But little did I know, here's what I learned back there. Oh, this was so difficult. This season I went through, we, uh, you know, I had a, a, a friend and we had a difficult circumstance and it kind of broke off our relationship for a while. But little did I know how the Lord was going to use that. We got reconciled and how what he taught me about himself, how he shaped my character. You don't know what the Lord is going to do. All you know is that he is going to act for his glory and for your good. Here's the last point. Providence means not only that God works in all the details, but providence means that God's the hero of the story. We always want to make Bible characters the hero. We're all looking for a hero. And I talked about this in the first message on Esther. I respect what Esther does in chapter 4. And she's to be held out as an example, for sure. But she's not the hero of the story. God is. You read chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the big chapter where Mordecai is promoted and Haman is fixing to get killed. This is where everything changes and Esther's never mentioned in the chapter. (laughs) God's never mentioned in the chapter, but even the pagans are saying God's doing something at the end of the chapter. So anybody reads this and goes, who's this book about? Who's this entire book about? It's about the Lord redeeming a people in Jesus Christ. And here he is being faithful to his people. If the pivot point was Esther going into the chamber, significant, Powerful woman of faith at that moment in her life. Wonderful. If I perish, I perish. That's great. We love that. We I, I preached that last week. But if that is the center of the book, then we just go away and we say, "Go be an Esther. Dare to be an Esther. Be an Esther wherever God's called you to be. Go be an Esther." And we go home and go. I, I don't know. Okay, I guess if I ever have to go talk to a king, I'll be. But if the story is God is at work preserving his people in the smallest details, like royal insomnia, then I can walk out of here and say, God is at work doing amazing things. He can turn things around in a moment to protect his people, and he's faithful to his people, and that's what he does. Then I walk away and say, God, you are the hero. I trust you. That's the difference in reading the Bible with a God-centered lens, seeing the gospel is center and seeing God at work versus moral character studies like Aesop's fables which say go be an Esther though we can learn from her it's not a, i'm not dissing her it's a matter of proportion and emphasis Karen Jobes in her commentary writes our God is so great so powerful that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night. Because a man would not bow down to his superior. Because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable are the ways of the Lord? Inscrutable I mean you can't understand them. God can save a whole race of people through all this done here. Just as this story has a pivot point, so the Bible has a pivot point. The Bible is one story. And the pivot point of the Bible is not Abraham, though he's great, Moses, amazing. It's not him. It's not David. It's not uh, Esther. It's not Ezra or Nehemiah. It's none of the prophets. The pivot point of the Bible is Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is, 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 comes to a point in the death and resurrection of Jesus Starts in a garden where there's creation, everything's created perfectly. People rebel against God and fall, and then we see how sin infects the world, and God makes a promise that I will save a people for myself. And then that comes to a point in Jesus Christ. And to anyone looking it, who did not know, it was a mundane event. The Romans, I mean, crucifixion, serious, but the Romans crucified a lot of people. And there, Jesus wasn't the only person to ever claim to be a Messiah. There was a lot of false messiahs. So one more Messiah, one more religious guy getting killed would not have been that shocking to the onlookers. While he was crucified, some people jeered. Some people just walked by. They saw executions in their culture all the time. So to the onlooker, it could look like, okay, there's one more guy dying. But what was really happening, God was working in the details of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, dying for sin, our sins, being buried, raised on the third day to defeat the power of sin and then change everything. Just as Mordecai goes from ashes to royal robes, so we as sinners go from those clothed in darkness to clothed in righteousness once we believe in Jesus. Everything changes for us at the pivot point of trusting the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus as a payment for our sins. Everything changes. And so for us, the pivot point of all of life is the work of Jesus in the gospel his dying for our sins, his rising for our life. And it's that remembrance of the gospel that is to hold us up in all times, times of deliver- difficulty, trusting in the Lord. Not only is he providential, rules over all, sovereign, and in providence he rules over all details, but he is good and gracious. And in the promise of Jesus, we know that we are sustained through everything. I'm going to close reading these verses from Romans 8. The band can come up if you guys want to. I'll give you an early, give you a head start this time. Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say if, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave his son Jesus, will he not take care of all the details of your life, is what he says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Go down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The pivot point of history, Jesus, gives us hope for every day. It's not just true, it is true, but it's not only true that God orchestrates the details of our lives, but it's true that he orchestrates the details of our lives out of his love for us and nothing can separate us from his love no difficulty can take you out of his hand if God is for us who can be against us if he did not spare his son will he not take care of all your details if he did not spare his son will he not help you in your relationships will he not sustain you in your physical suffering will he not help you financially whatever you're facing today Will God not help you because nothing can separate you from his love? He's the center of it all. He's the pivot point of it all. And we are with him in his hands for eternity. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.